Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. I'm Grant Parisi, and we'll be hosting today's conversation. We're going to frame today's discussion with a quick temporal comparison. Decades ago, polio was endemic in over 100 countries. Today, there are only two countries with wild virus, and there's been a 99% reduction in cases and a huge reduction in the geographic footprint of the disease. We are fortunate to have with us today, Ellen Ogden, who can speak perhaps better than anyone about the dramatic global effort, having participated and led much of it herself. Ellen, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm very excited to speak with you and to know the audience is listening. Ellen, you've participated in polio eradication for the U.S. Agency for International Development, or, or USAID, since 1997. You're an epidemiologist and, and public health practitioner, and you oversee an over $2 billion investment spanning 30 countries for polio eradication, surveillance, communication, containment, and you're the only female member of the European Certification Commission for Polio Eradication. As if that weren't enough, you won the, the USAID's award for, for heroism in 2009. I'd like to start by, by just framing some of the challenges that you faced when you stepped into your leadership role at USAID in, in 1997. Your goal was to eradicate polio. Can you share some of the, the challenges of, of the landscape that you faced at the time? I'd be happy to. First, let me say I was so excited to be asked to lead this effort. Polio will be the only the second human disease ever to be eradicated. And at the time in 1997, there was still a lot of enthusiasm coming off the heels of smallpox eradication. Vaccines had been shown to prevent disease and disability. There was this worldwide sense that we could do the next big thing. We had had a wonderful leader in the Americas, Dr. Ciro de Quadros, had been working to get rid of polio in the Americas and had really demonstrated proof that the approach to eradication that had been originally envisioned by Albert Sabin would actually work in terms of vaccinating all children under five repeatedly in mass campaigns with a good surveillance system to detect any residual cases and if we could mobilize a global workforce to vaccinate every child on the planet under age five multiple times with an oral vaccine, we could get rid of this disease that paralyzed over 400,000 kids a year. And in 1988, the world came together to have a declaration that polio would be eradicated by the year 2000. And countries, all countries in the world signed on to this, big and small. And we were able to develop the strategic plans needed to eradicate. We had political leadership. We had the faith and confidence of people on the ground to make this happen. In Africa, Nelson Mandela led the Kick Polio Out of Africa campaigns, which were launched in 1996 which brought 40 plus countries in Africa together to pledge to get rid of this disease that paralyzes children. So it was a very exciting time. 
to come into it. But it was also a very challenging time, as you can imagine, trying to vaccinate 700 million plus children under age five in every corner of the world is not a small task. And it took tremendous collaboration and coordination from ministries of health, UN organizations, foundations, NGOs, civil society groups to plan and map out where every single household is to get millions, billions of doses of vaccine distributed down to what we are now calling the last mile, really down to the household level. And it has to be kept cold. So if you can picture yourselves in the jungle of the Democratic Republic of Congo, trying to airlift vaccines to a remote village where ice is melting faster than you can imagine, these are some of the operational challenges that we were facing to actually deliver the vaccine to all of the world's children. It was a tremendous logistics operation at the time. Just to give you a perspective, in India, over the course of five days, we vaccinate 192 million children. And when we started to look for where we were missing them, because we were getting a lot of kids, but we still had virus circulating. Why was that happening? We learned that many children were on the move. They weren't at their homes on the days of the campaign. So we had to develop a transit strategy that would allow us to place vaccinators on the long distance trains and buses and transit stops and all of the, the places where people might jump off and onto vehicles and buses and stuff. And over the same five days of the campaign, we were getting over 5 million children on the move. And so this helped us refine our strategies to know not only who we reached, but who we did not reach. And if we didn't reach them because we didn't plan properly, there wasn't a vaccination team going to a location or a household wasn't on the plan or that we set up a booth in a place that other people couldn't access. And we thought we had a good map of where people were gonna go to get vaccinated, but it turns out there are tribal or ethnic or religious reasons why they won't go to this part of the town, but they will go to this other part of the town. So learning about communities, learning about how people approach service delivery, how they approach their health workers, were all things we were learning about in this quest to vaccinate the world's children. Such an unbelievable and, and, and almost conceivably insurmountable task. And the idea that, that comes to my mind, Ellen, is there's not a established pathway for doing what you did and, and what you are doing. I wonder, I mean, just there's so much to learn about how to get vaccines to people and it's never been done before. How did you do that at the beginning of your career? I always look at things as breaking them into manageable pieces. So if we're missing people in rural areas, I should go to rural areas and find out what the issues are. So one of my favorite field trips was in Abia State, Nigeria. And we drove as far as the road could go. And then we walked another several kilometers. And then I had to walk across a creek that had a log bridge and I felt like Indiana Jones. And then we had to walk up the side of a mountain 
And then we got to another river where we had to cross it in a canoe where we had to call the canoe driver from the other side to come fetch us. And then we walked up to yet another part of the mountain where there was a palm oil plantation at the top. And we asked if the teams had been there to vaccinate the kids. And sure enough, we had seen the house markings. The villagers could tell us that they knew the names of the vaccinators. They could point in the direction that they went. I asked if they had marked the fingers of every child. And they said, yes. And I said, well, let me see the youngest child in this village. So they showed me to the baby. And sure enough, the finger was marked, indicating that the team had been there. Could you tell us quickly what the, the finger marking indicates? So the finger marking is part of our quality assurance. So when you give oral vaccine, it doesn't leave a scar or a mark or a red spot or anything like some of the other vaccines do. So in order for us to keep track of which children were vaccinated or not, we marked their little finger with a marker. And at the end of the campaign, we have uh, monitors who go around and they check the fingers of the children. And if they find too many that are not marked, that area is designated as a redo area. They have to go back and do it again. And that gives us some sense of the quality of the campaigns that we're implementing. And it helps to hold people accountable. You know, why did the teams miss a lot of kids in that area? Maybe they had a legitimate challenge. Maybe their car broke down. You know, maybe they just didn't know that there was a house in that part of the town. There's all kinds of reasons. And so when you actually go into the villages and go try to find out why children are missed, it often reveals some amazing things about those communities and of people's ability to access the willingness of communities to allow not only strangers, but even people they know into their homes and villages. It's a complex dynamic that we're dealing with every time we try to approach somebody for vaccination. They have to trust us. In addition to the task of eradicating polio, there were and must have been structural challenges that came in working in the field that was widely, if, if not exclusively, had male leadership. Tell us about how that impacted your career at the, at the outset and how it's changed. It has had a, a big impact, I would say. And to give credit to USAID, they selected me. So I've always had tremendous support from my own agency to play this role. And you know, they really backed me on, on every step of the way. The real challenge is in policy-making forums, in decision-making forums that are dominated by medical doctors, by epidemiologists, by people within the UN system who very much come in with this can-do attitude and they're very driven to eradicate a disease. They come at it from a, a very pure epidemiologic perspective. Whereas I come at it from a bit of a holistic point of view, a more social perspective. I'm a trained epidemiologist, but I also have a considerable amount of training in interpersonal communications, in development, how you build sustainable systems, how you nurture and work with communities so that they can take on these roles in the future. And so the perspective that USAID brings and that I bring is a much more holistic and long-term view. And that often puts us at odds with people who want to just get in, eradicate, get out. 
And so there were, were often tensions there. But there are also cultural aspects. So being a woman, I can see some of the challenges in a different way. One of the things we've learned very quickly in many countries is that there's a cultural practice of not bringing out newborns for the first 40 days of their lives. Or people are afraid of the evil eye. They're afraid of different things. So if you are not from that community and you're not a woman, you can't enter the house and go find the newborns or the very young kids. You can knock on the door. You can say, please bring your children out so we can vaccinate them. But they're not going to bring their very young kids out. And so to overcome that, we realized you really do need trusted women who can enter the house and go find the baby and vaccinate the baby in the house. So that's one example. There are other examples, especially in conservative communities, Muslim and otherwise, where they don't want strangers, especially men that are not from their community, they just have been trained not to open the door. I mean, we all face that as well, stranger danger. You don't really open your door to, to people you don't know who want to put something in your kid's mouth. You know, there's some very realistic concerns there. And so we realize you have to send somebody that is trusted from the community. And predominantly at the beginning of the polio effort, it was mostly men. And many of them were not from the ethnic group or from that community. And by my site visits and documenting this feedback, we were able to convince most countries to switch their workforce from 95% male to 95% female in terms of the vaccinators going to door to door. We still have challenges of getting women into supervisory capacity, decision-making capacity, and certainly in the higher levels of these international organizations. But I do feel pretty good about knowing that women are approaching other women and families at the community level and that that made a real difference. That's such a dramatic change, 95% male to 95% female. Can you tell us more about that? Maybe a specific country, I know you've done a lot of work in, in India, or if there's a better example that, that you think can illustrate just how that happened? So my, my favorite story from India is I went to this rural area in Uttar Pradesh, and I was meeting with the district level, sort of a county level, the health team in charge of polio. And it was all men, they were all Hindu. And I said, well, tell me about this community that we're going to. And they said, well, madam, it's a very resistant community. They don't want vaccination. And I said, how do you know? And they said, well, we went there and we knocked on the doors and they wouldn't open their doors to us. So they were refusing vaccination. And I said, let's go see. And so we drove to this community and they get out and they start pounding on the door as loud as possible. Open up. You know, we're here to see your children. We need to talk to you. And I'm thinking, this is probably not the best way to approach this particular community in this particular household. And so I, I said, you know, let me try. And so I asked the man that I was working with, one of our surveillance officers, could you quietly and gently repeat after me? And he said, yes. And the, so in my voice, in a woman's voice, I said, hello, you know, I'm here to ask you some questions about the immunization of your children. I'd really like to talk to somebody in the household. 
and my good colleague Nihal translated for me. And eventually you heard some shuffling behind the door and this old grandma opens the door and she sees me, doesn't speak English, but I start asking her questions like, you know, we really want to understand, you know, why you didn't agree to get vaccinated. And she, she looked at this man and she goes, well, he was pounding on my door and we're not allowed to open the door. I don't know him. And I said, okay. I said, do you have children inside the house? And you could tell they did because there were little bicycles and little children's clothes hanging on the line. And there were clues all over the place that there were plenty of children in this little village. And she says, well, yes, we do have children. And I said, would it be okay if I vaccinated them? And she says, are you going to charge me? And I said, no. And she goes, well, they wanted to charge me for the vaccine. And I said, well, our policy is that you, we give out the vaccine for free. And I would be happy to come into the house and vaccinate the kids myself. And so she let me and then she told her neighbors. And before long, I had vaccinated basically two, about 200, 250 kids that the traditional team had missed just because I approached them in a nice way. I was still a stranger, but I approached them nicely. I explained what I wanted to do and respected their cultural practices and perspective. And we got full cooperation from the 15 minutes I invested into taking the time to approach them properly. And I had so many encounters like that that I felt pretty confident going back to government and saying, we have to change our planning. You have to change the mix of people on your team. We are not going to reach everybody if you keep doing it this way. We have to change. And so it became persuasive when you can do it from your own experience. And governments listened. And they did listen. They often might have sent out one or two other people to confirm what I was saying. But pretty quickly, I would say within a year, certainly in India, we had made that switch in most places from predominantly male to female teams. And that became a huge lesson learned and was quickly mainstreamed as best practice everywhere else. There are very few places where there's still more male than female vaccinators. And we continue to, to try to work through that. But you know, that said, if there is a reluctance to have women on the team, it, there are some very conservative areas. We have also found solutions to that. So who else do the families let into the household? Well, they might let a retired imam, a retired religious leader, an elder from the, the place, a traditional leader might be able to have access. And so in those particular communities, we can work with retired imams so that they can go in and get the children or bring them out. We've also had interesting solutions like husband and wife teams, or even if you have male teams, they may hold a sheet over the door and they pass the baby over the sheet to the vaccinators that are outside so the male vaccinators don't see the women inside. There's all kinds of ways you can come to a solution to vaccinate kids if you're willing to sit and listen and talk and, and work together with communities to overcome whatever the challenge is. That's one of the things I find exciting. Well, speaking of, of overcoming challenges, I'd like to focus in on a particular moment in your career, Ellen. This is about 12 years, I think, after you'd stepped into the role in, in 2009. And 
imagine a, a lot of progress had been made at that point, but still so much to do. And that year you received USAID's award for, for heroism. Tell us about that. Eradicating polio means you can't just vaccinate kids in places that are calm and peaceful. We also have to reach the children that are living in conflict areas, fragile states, where there's active fighting, or where there's groups that don't want outsiders in or are very resistant to the vaccine or anything from the West. And there's a long history in polio eradication of negotiating what we call days of tranquility in areas with active fighting. And my dear colleague, Sierra de Quadros, first began this in the Americas when there was fighting in Central America with the Shining Path in Peru. But over the course of eradication since the 1980s, there have been multiple countries that have been able to stop fighting on the days of the polio campaigns in order to vaccinate kids. And we were finding in sort of the mid-early 2000s that in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there was active fighting in the eastern part of the country with multiple rebel groups and militias. And they would not participate in the polio campaigns. They didn't think it really meant anything to them. The country based out in the formal government in Kinshasa had very little, no control over what was happening in the eastern part of the country and no ability to really influence anything related to polio at the time. And so the U.S. ambassador to the Democratic Republic of Congo asked me if I would make an effort to negotiate days of tranquility with the main rebel groups in the East and to see if I could broker an agreement to get all the kids vaccinated. And, and where were you stationed at the time? So I was still based in Washington. I've always been based in Washington, but spend about 70% of my time in the countries. I've been doing that up until COVID. That was pretty normal. He knew that I had worked with Sierra de Quadros. He knew I was familiar with how to do this. He thought I would be a good interlocutor. I was pretty neutral in that battle between the Congolese and I knew polio and I could speak authoritatively on behalf of the polio initiative. So I agreed and I flew to Kigali and drove up to Goma and crossed into Eastern DRC in Goma and was met by somebody very familiar with all of the various groups fighting in, in the East, as well as working with WHO and UNICEF. They had a presence out there and had been able to vaccinate people in Goma and a couple of other, the more urban areas, but hadn't had no success in vaccinating most of the eastern part of the country. And so the people that I was meeting with knew the rebel groups and knew where they were. And through other interlocutors, we arranged some meetings. And so I met with one of the big groups in Goma and basically laid out sort of the epidemiologic situation. This is how many kids in your area were getting paralyzed. We feel we can help avoid paralysis. We can vaccinate them. These people have much better lives. We can do this. Here, and he said, well, what does it take? So we talked about the logistics of bringing in vaccine and cold boxes, communication equipment, 
that we'd need vaccinators, we need community mobilizers, that we would have a plan and we go door to door. You had to basically spell out all of the logistics. And after I spelled all of that out, they said, well, if you can get agreement from the other groups, we will agree to not fight on the days of the campaign, provided that this is how the plan is going to work. And I said, okay, I'll get back to you. And I went and visited the next rebel group and basically told them the exact same thing. Here is the situation. Here's what we can do. We need your cooperation. We're very transparent about what our plans are. Would this be acceptable? And they said, well, if all the other groups agree, then yes, it's acceptable. So then I flew to the other major group that had been led by Jean-Pierre Bemba up in Badalit, Mobuto's birthplace, and stayed overnight at their headquarters because we couldn't get up there and back on the same day, and had a long conversation about the polio situation, what it would take to vaccinate kids, again, laying out all of the plans. And he agreed that we could do this. So I said, okay, all three of you, the groups are in agreement. We're going to go ahead and make this happen. And through our interlocutors, the word got out that everybody had agreed to the plan that we put forward. They had agreed to stop fighting on the days of the polio campaign. We had agreed on the dates of the campaign. We agreed on how the vaccine was coming in, how they would know that was the vaccine on that plane coming in. There was call signs and all sorts of things. And I found out later that each of them had spies in each other's camp. And so they all reported back that, yes, indeed, I had said exactly the same thing to every group. Nobody was getting preferential treatment or more or less than anybody else. And so after they all verified what I had said, they all agreed. And so about six weeks later, the polio campaigns were launched and we vaccinated six million children in the Eastern DR Congo. And those ceasefires have been in place essentially ever since. There's very few groups that even today will not recognize the ceasefire when there's polio campaigns. So that was a really remarkable time. Were you afraid after you had negotiated so hard for the ceasefires and made these promises that you would lose trust if you didn't follow through or if something through no fault of your own had gone wrong? Um, or were you just just confident? I mean, there's always that possibility, but I felt that I had good relationships with WHO, with UNICEF, and that what we were proposing, I had already sort of pre-agreed on. So I was only laying out a plan that I knew was was doable. And so it really went off without a hitch. Yeah, things can happen, but this is one of those times when the way you planned it actually happened and it, it did work. So that felt really, really good. And since then, I've been asked to negotiate ceasefires in, in a couple of other places as well, in the eastern Angola. I had the Kenyan government asked me if I would negotiate with the cattle rustlers in one part of the country because they were disrupting the campaigns. So I'm getting a little bit of a reputation for doing this. 
Um, but I was so thrilled when USAID recognized my efforts and, and gave me that award in 2009. It was really special. You mentioned, Ellen, that more recently, of course, with COVID-19, it's, it's been harder to, to travel. And you've also shared offline that your, your workflow has quadrupled in the past <laughs> two years as you're, you're trying to incorporate the, the COVID vaccine into, into your other work. What's that been like? Is there, are there some synergies that we can take advantage of and, and learn from? What are some of the new challenges that you're facing today? The short answer is there are many ways that we can build on our lessons from polio. And that's one reason why USAID is creating a bigger space for me to, to play that advisory role and to really try to work proactively to build on our lessons from polio. But more specifically, COVID is in a, it's an adult vaccine where most of what we've done in the past are childhood vaccines. COVID is an injectable vaccine where polio is an oral vaccine. And so for most countries, this is quite new and they don't have a lot of experience doing mass campaigns for adults using injectables. So that is one of the big differences. But what are the similarities are that you still need to have good planning. You still need to use the maps of where people live and where to position the vaccination sites and make sure you're not missing anybody. You still have to make sure your vaccination posts are not on one ethnic side and not on the other. All of those lessons are going to become important as we identify where people are going to get vaccinated for COVID. We know that you need operational costs. You need people to be trained in vaccination, how to manage the cold chain, making sure the vaccine stays at the right temperature. All of those skills are ones that they learned in polio that are now being applied. I think one of the biggest challenges is in vaccine hesitancy and confidence. And in polio, as I said initially, there was this huge enthusiasm for the vaccine. But over the last 25 years or so, vaccine confidence and hesitancy and misinformation about vaccines and has taken off. And with the advent of social media, quite often misinformation is spread rapidly, or even a minor adverse event might get blown out of proportion and people get afraid, and then you have to find ways to go back in and rebuild confidence or present information in a way that answers and calms their fears about it. And we've done that pretty well in the places where polio really experienced a lot of hesitancy. And we saw this in parts of India, 40% of communities were afraid of the vaccine because they had heard a rumor that the vaccine causes sterility or HIV. And through building relationships at the community level, bringing in religious and traditional leaders, spending the time to listen to people's concerns, we were able to bring down vaccine refusals from 40% to under 5%. And we have been able to do that consistently around the world, not just in India, we've done it in Nigeria, we've done it in many, many countries. And so now looking at COVID and the vaccine confidence and hesitancy, it's the orders of magnitude are much larger. And it's not just the developing world, it's the US, it's developed countries 
also we're all facing this vaccine confidence and hesitancy issue. And so one of the things we're trying to bring to our approach in the countries where USAID is working is to really understand who is missed, why were they missed, what are the best messages? And if these messages are not working, can we craft new ones? Do we have the right messenger? Have we really brought in communities? Have we spent that time one-on-one? Are our health workers well-trained in how to talk to people and how to answer their questions? So all of those skills that we learned were effective in polio, we now have to apply to COVID and in a much shorter time frame. So it, it's a very, very big challenge, but we think we have some good tools and we are just at the very beginning of trying to roll that out. We haven't even had time to, to really try to see if there's an impact yet because we're just getting started. Yours is such a such an inspiring story and really the success of the polio eradication globally is, is inspiring. But I wonder, what inspires you personally, Ellen? In some ways, it's an easy question. And in some ways, it's a harder question. I wake up every day excited about what I'm doing. I love the fact that I'm able to use my knowledge and skills to help other people on a large scale. I love the fact that there's new challenges every day. And that we work with great people to help solve them. I love being in the field and talking to to people and women and even kids in the community about what their lives are like and what they're facing and how we can make it a little bit better. And collaboratively, you can't do it from the outside alone. It has to be a partnership with the countries, with the people that are there. I see opportunities for how we can build on our lessons from polio for other programs, not just COVID, but we're also exploring how we can use our infrastructure, our community networks to report other diseases, part of the global health security approach. So we can detect diseases earlier and respond earlier and thus reduce morbidity and mortality and give kids and adults a better life. To be in a position to do that, is an honor, it's a privilege. And to work within the US government as a public servant, to have the confidence of Congress who gives us our resources that we're still doing a good job in this. I wanna be a good steward of the money and the resources, but also that ideal that that the US and us as, as technical professionals can really have a lasting impact in the world. And that is plenty of inspiration for me. I work with fantastic people. I get to see the world. I see it through different eyes. And to me, that, that is just a dream and a privilege. Well, we hope that our conversation today breathes life into some inspiration for some of our listeners in imbibing the wonderful work that, that you're doing and the spirit and energy that, that you bring to it. Thank you so much for, for joining us today, Ellen. Yeah, my pleasure. You can listen to more civic conversations online or on your favorite podcast app.